Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Like most companies, large companies have you know loads of accounting policies covering everything from reserve accounting to how you value assets to how to fill in travel expense forms. And when I typed into the corporate controller's database forecasting, I got zero hit. Everybody said forecasts are really important and our forecasts are rubbish, but nobody could say what good looked like. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers show. Now, you've just heard from Steve Morledge, and Steve and I managed to catch up just before the Christmas holidays, and we weren't under too much time pressure. So that allowed us to really examine Steve's career all the way back to when he was responsible for implementing Beyond Budgeting at Unilever, to actually how he his career evolved from answering some of the key questions that that challenge all of us. And actually, one of the introductory comments you just heard around forecasting, I mean, how many of us in our organizations have or consider forecasting as really important, but where's the standard operating procedure around it? Where's the, where's the approach on how we eliminate bias? Um, how can we get the insights across in a better way? How do we filter the data, make sense of it? How do we provide clear picture to the business? And also, I think a lot of us intuitively know the pitfalls of traditional budgeting and variant analysis. But hey, guess what? That's what a lot of our organizations are still looking to us to provide, or perhaps we're just still providing it and not examine the better toolkits. And the great thing about having Steve on, on this episode, uh, and this is a, a part one of a two-part series is that Steve helps us better understand the, the toolkit, those better toolkits that are out there and how we can implement them in our own organizations. One of the things I most enjoyed about having Steve on the show is that there's just no BS about what he says. It's completely straight matter of fact, because I think that's what you need to do when you're examining these areas that involve potentially a lot of subjectivity. And it's really refreshing to get that point of view. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you did, you can check out our timestamp show notes, key quotes, resources, and ways to connect with Steve and more at sitnshow.com. And we always really appreciate it when you recommend the show to your colleagues and friends. They can subscribe on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. And that's enough for me. So without further ado, over to Steve and the show. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure to have you on. And, you know, we've spoken a few times um, over the last few months. We managed to meet up in London as well. And and you know, I would say your name is fairly well known in accounting and finance. However, you know, this is a global show and some of our audience may not be as familiar with some of your background. So would you perhaps maybe mind sharing a brief uh, story of your career in accounting and finance? Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you. Basically, my background is I'm a regular qualified accountant. I worked for Unilever for 25 years. And my last proper job in Unilever was as financial controller of Unilever's foods, 
business in the UK. That led into a sort of second career after Unilever, which has taken a form which is distinctly unconventional. And, and I think I think that's a bit I'd love to explore with you, Steve, because uh, some of your, your thinking and writings and the progression of them, I find are very much useful to help us in finance sustain our momentum towards remaining relevant and, and creating uh, valuable conversations within our organization. So how, how did you sort of get from that end of your conventional career, so to say it, to where you are now? My last proper job as financial controller, I had the fantastic opportunity to build something from scratch. It worked great and I had a fantastic time, but I became increasingly aware of how a number of things I did just didn't work or didn't make sense. Um, And in particular, there there was the issue of the annual budget, which was the most obvious manifestation of, of that. And, and really, my journey started when I was introduced to a couple of guys in the late 90s called uh, Robin Fraser and, and Jeremy Hope, who were in the process of setting something up called the Beyond Budgeting Roundtable, which was an attempt to construct a research community to look for alternatives to traditional budgeting. So that's how it all started, but it's kind of got a bit of out of control since then because I haven't been able to stop. But seriously, though, you say that, but that's that was my sense in our number our conversations we've had to date. It's just like that seems to be where it was the turning point. And, and like, you know, for this podcast, the reason why I set that up is I felt that we needed to share more of our stories about what worked and what didn't. And you, you know, I, I, yeah. I don't make you feel old or anything, but much before even I thought of setting up this podcast, you were they're already realizing this doesn't work what can we do about it and looking for answers and it's not just answers but i like how you're finding practical solutions and and deconstructing them down so we can actually use them it's practical stuff you're finding mixing your what you're learning now with perhaps what you your sort of practical career your career as a practitioner let's call it so it's actually really useful stuff and it's and it's more apt for modern day conversation right yeah i hope so so if you like there are kind of couple of ingredients if you like that run through all of my story one is a kind of recognition of the things i did wrong (laughs) and did badly i don't beat myself too much about up about it because uh, everybody makes the same mistakes and indeed most of the mistakes are things that you're actually taught to do secondly is I, i kind of got a nerdy interest in theory and the kind of science behind things but then uh, the third ingredient is that it's absolutely pointless understanding the theory if you can't apply it. And so I'm trying, in everything I'm doing, I'm trying to do come up with solutions that the me of 20 years ago could use to actually do things well rather than do things badly. And that's why we just had to get you on the show. Uh, you know, I'm going to take those ingredients now, Steve, right? I'd love to go through them because I think that first one, I'd just love to get your perspective. You know, you know, what's been perhaps maybe the biggest mistake of doing stuff that we were taught to do in your mind, like or what we're continuing to do. So, you know, we've listeners out there probably putting into practice loads of things they've been taught to do. What's probably the biggest mistake we're doing at the moment in our profession? Well, I think it, what it boils down to is the funda- fundamental problem with budgeting, which is we've got a whole system of management which is predicated on the assumption that we can predict the future. And we can predict the future and we can lock down plans 
then the second assumption is we assume people are untrustworthy and so we force people to comply to those plans and reward them for hitting numbers and, and beat them up for, for missing the numbers, even though the numbers are based on predictions, which we know is wrong. Um, and what lies at the heart of all of our methodological struggles is the our failure to recognise and deal with the fact that the world is uncertain. We work on the assumption it isn't uncertain or can be made more certain, and it can't. So it's fundamentally about developing a toolkit which allows us to deal with uncertainty and the fact that our knowledge of the world evolves. It's not something that, that can be crystallised um, at a single point in time. Well, uh, I like that. So maybe let's say if we were to arm ourselves then with this toolkit to deal with uncertainty, I mean, what tools would you pack in in your toolkits? Well, um, perhaps a good place to start is where, where I started. So if, I, if you'll just indulge me a little bit if I go into reminiscing <laughs> mode. When I first started with Beyond Budgeting, it became a kind of uh, a, a, an obsession trying to work out what it was about this idea that made it intuitively appealing and yet actually difficult to see how it could be applied in the world. So that consumed me for a while. And, and to cut a, a long story short, I decided that's kind of what I wanted to do with my post-conventional career. So I got myself onto, I, I was very lucky that Unilever was kicking off a finance strategy project, which was really important and exciting. But one of those projects, like in any large company, uh, nobody wanted to do, <laughs> nobody wanted to get onto because it represented a kiss of death as far as a career is concerned. But from my point of view, that wasn't an issue. Uh, we did we had a fantastic opportunity going around the world for about a year, talking to whoever we wanted to, and building a finance strategy for Unilever. Part of which was an attempt to bring Beyond Budgeting into Unilever, mm. and that strategy project turned into a real project. And I put my hand up to volunteer for to actually lead that beyond budgeting implementation in Unilever, which all happened, which was great. And then I was faced with the practical challenge of how do I make this happen? Mm. Because at that time, there was just me and there was 200,000 people working in Unilever. Oh, yeah. And budgeting is a huge process, which informed so many other aspects of corporate life. Any kind of change was difficult and scary. Mm. And where I started was in the forecasting space because I realized I was trying to eat an elephant so I needed just to take part of the beyond budgeting model and also recognize that one of the reasons why people were anxious about letting go of budgeting even though they knew it didn't make sense and it took too long and all of that kind of stuff was that it gave them some kind of handle on the future people aren't going to let go of one what Sengi, Peter Sengi calls one brass ring until they've got another brass ring to hold on to. Mm -hmm. So I started off looking at forecasting because it was one of those things that everybody said was terribly important and was done very badly, but nobody had any clear idea about how it should be done, mm -hmm. what was the right way to forecast. And I did some research and nobody in finance seemed to know how to do that. So that's where I started off. From that and from what I learned came my first book, which is called Future Ready, which is, I think even now, I think it's the still the only business book dealing with what 
I call business forecasting, which is forecasting in the middle ground. So uh, it's not operational forecasting, which is very short term. Mm -hmm. It's not strategic forecasting, which is very long term. It's that forecasting in the middle ground. And the key attribute of business forecasting is you forecast the future in order to change the future because you're using it to steer and you might change course and in the process invalidate your forecast. So there are some qualities of business forecasting which are rather unique and which I don't think anybody kind of thought about or explored or tried to um, convert into some sort of practical methodology. So that's where the first book came from. I was just thinking, Steve, like that's, that's a big shame because you know, one of the my sort of bugbears is traditional accounting and finance training arms us with great tools to go and do uh, reporting and analysis and, and ensure controls to put in place and so on. It just seems to sort of stop there. It doesn't really sort of say, okay, this is what we're learning. How do we go do something about it? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where you're coming in with the, the business forecasting. It's like, what's the point in putting together something that's forward looking if you're not going to do anything with it and, and drive or yeah. navigate, help the business navigate. So, yeah. you know, maybe uh, could you share some sort of tips? Because I, for me, I do think this is something that we could do better in our profession is do something with our forecast that, that's that's useful. Yeah, well, it's perhaps a bit of a long story there. I th- I might, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll duck that question. <laughs> yeah, but be- because I'm, I'm conscious uh, the listeners to this podcast might want to go to sleep, <laughs> go to bed at, at some point point in the next few hours because that's quite I mean it's a good question it's a big question it's a big question but maybe maybe I'll come on to it right at the end actually. yeah okay yeah maybe yeah okay I, I think there's something more fundamental than that it, which is a problem I encountered at the early stage of my research in, into what, what ended up as the book which is everybody said our forecasts are bad but how do you define what's a good forecast yeah okay like most companies Large companies had, you know, loads of accounting policies covering everything, but reserve accounting <laughs> to how you value assets to how to fill in travel expense forms. Yeah. And when I typed into the corporate controllers database forecasting, I got zero hits. You're just reinforcing yeah, the zero. point I just made. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, yeah, we're great nothing. at compliance, but yeah. like yeah. <laughs> something that's useful. Everybody said forecasts are really important and our forecasts are exactly. rubbish, but nobody yeah. could say what good looks like. <laughs> so that really annoyed me and so that started uh, another journey which has ended up being a bit of a a tangent to my main forecasting my my main finance journey which was starting off with a qualitative definition of what good looks like for a financial forecast which for the benefit of listeners is a forecast with zero bias which is not consistently over or under forecast and with acceptable levels of variation which is what that means is that any forecast is going to be wrong, but so long as it's not so wrong that it causes you to make the wrong decision in terms of steering the business, that's okay. That's where it started. And then the obvious next question is, okay, so how do you measure bias? How do you know if a forecast is yeah. biased? And that got me into to stats. And I discovered a tool that had been lying around for about 30, 40 years that, that nobody in finance used. And so I developed a quantitative method for measuring the quality of forecast. Then I found out that uh, although I developed that for finance, there was no kind of market for the idea in finance because forecasting wasn't sophisticated <laughs> enough <laughs> to try to measure it. So I ended up taking that into supply chain where as you'd appreciate 
Silicon FM, FMCG type company like Unilever, people are forecasting thousands and thousands of forecasts on a very high level of frequency. And the quality of those forecasts has a direct impact on how much stock you have, quality of your customer service and so on and so forth. So I took that into supply chain, built a software around that and got diverted for four or five years into building that company that delivered that particular service, which is helping people to work out how good their forecasts were mm. and consequently correct them. Ultimately, that became my third book, which is called The Little Book of Operational Forecasting, where because there was no no book for operational forecasters, demand managers, demand planners that wasn't highly statistical mm. and was and consequently theoretical and, and not terribly useful. So I, I wrote that book to try to give practical forecasters, demand planners, the intellectual framework to help them do their job better, irrespective of whether they used my software or not. So, so that was a bit of a, a diversion. And since then, I've got back uh, much more into kind of mainstream finance. And before we sort of go into that mainstream finance area, like, uh, you know, it sort of concerns me a bit, Steve, that, you know, a lot of us out there would probably be challenged. I know you gave a definition for it, for what a good forecast looks like. But if we can't even get to good, then there's no chance we're going to be able to get to great. You know, so yeah. how, how do we even get to good? So maybe is there any sort of tips that we could use to remove bias or or thoughts on how we can better quantitative, quantitatively uh, make our forecast uh, better? Well, I think that the this really simple things, the fundamental thing is recognizing that there is a it's an important and necessary distinction between a target and a forecast. And that, that sounds kind of obvious, <laughs> but it's the thing that most people struggle with. So a target is an aspiration where you would like to be, mm. and a forecast is an expectation is where you think you will be based on current plans, assumptions about the world, et cetera, et cetera. And there is, there are those two things, most of the time, there will be a gap between them. And what you do as managers is try to close that gap by doing things differently. So it, it's, uh, think of it like sailing. So you want to get to a port, but, uh, and you set out in the, what you thought was the right direction, but the wind has changed direction. And so you're heading off in the wrong direction. And what you need to do is to recognize, first of all, that you're heading in the wrong direction and that therefore there is a gap between your forecast and your target. And then you need to work out what you need to do differently. Uh, the problem we have is that one of the problems with traditional budgeting, it kind of conflates the idea of a target and the forecast because all the numbers are made to agree. We lose sight of the fact that those two things are different. And what's more, it makes the concept of a gap bad because it's a negative variance yeah mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of organizational pressure that comes on people to deny the existence of gap because you get punished if there's a gap yeah well, and you don't have a instead of having a conversation of what you need to do differently you're beaten up because you're inverted commas not performing and so there is a whole series of behavioral uh, repertoires that get rolled out you know, people say things like that forecast is not good enough, mm. which stops us from tackling the process of forecasting 
in the way we need to, which is a sort of objective evidence-based exercise of trying to project where you're going to end up if you don't, if you carry on doing what you're planning, what you, your plans currently say. So that's the fundamental problem, mm -hmm. is recognising intellectually that there's a gap and then changing the behaviours which tend to be manifest around discussions about the forecast. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a prediction, it's a projection which is different. And it's actually good that there's a gap because then you have the conversations which you need to have. That's the fundamental problem that we have in finance. And, and it's not just... A problem that affects finance is because that kind of debate tends to leak into other areas. So one of the biggest problems with operational forecasting is that it becomes infected by this mm -hmm. disease. And that's why we end up with too much stock yeah, <laughs> for yeah. poor customer service. Yeah, that, that, if, if it feeds into what's actually happening on the ground and on the front lines, which, I, I, you know, like, look, you've outlined the problem very well, Steve. I just sort of scratching my head at the moment like where where could we in, fi in finance even start change I, I don't know if we could successfully change a culture that's like that but where could we do our best to at least start changing the conversation to appreciate look you know there is a difference between a target and a forecast and what we need to be doing is driving different behaviors how do we bring the rest of the organization along I think that there isn't a simple answer to that mm. because like any change management question, it, where you start from, we, we know where we want to get to, yes. but everybody's starting from a different point. Mm. I mean, one would like to think that you could have a rational discussion and explain to people why this is a problem, why this is important and what the problem is. And they go, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right, right. Andrew. Yeah. We're all going to change tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's uh, rarely happened to me. So, <laughs> yeah, but that's why I was scratching my head. It's um, yeah, and but we're all looking for the, for a similar goal here, which is to reduce uncertainty. You know, yeah. and have something yeah. to cling to, and, and that's yeah. what or, or embrace. Well, embrace uncertainty, embrace it, mm. and then deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, rather than hide it. That's the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean look, I, I suppose, look, I was I was lucky when, when I when I joined one company early in my career. They It was a fast moving consumer goods. And, and what they, they did very well was they, yes, they did have aspirational targets. But what they also did was operationally, they looked at the best P&Ls and they said, look, it's, it's unrealistic to expect everyone to be at 100% on that dimension or whatever. But if you could yeah. get to maybe 80% or 75% of that level of performance, what would an ideal P&L look like? You know, what yeah. is attainable? You know, everyone yeah. can get near the best. You don't have to be the best. And actually, yeah. when you, you, you bring people together and, and drive with real data, conversations, you're trying to eliminate bias. You know, I'm not saying the 75 or 80% is right, but there, there's some level of performance you can get buy-in on. And then you can start moving people to take constructive actions where they're not sort of inflating inventory numbers to uh, to to drive uh, uh, you know better gross profits yeah. or something like that, but yeah, but essentially there are there are things we can drive at the operational level that hopefully might help behavior change over time. Is, is there any sort of success stories or, or things you come across, Steve, that that you could share with audience? Well, I mean, I again, everybody's experience is unique. Yeah. I but I think there is potentially a way in which we in finance can influence the way that people think without actually trying to tell them that they need to change the way that they think and that kind of leads mm. Mm. into the next area we could talk about which is what ultimately 
ended up as my last book, which is Present Scent. Mm -hmm. I agree. If you'll just indulge me, I can talk a little bit about that. Hey, look, it's it's a, it's a great way of getting in there because I think we're we're leading towards this because there's some important okay. points in present sense I'd love to to share with our audience. So yeah, please please continue, Steve. Okay. Well, I'll start off by explaining what I meant by my last comment, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the sort of issues that we're trying to deal with in present sense. The analogy I always use, which has been a very successful one in talking about forecasting, if you think of if you're in a sailing boat, you start off from point A, you're trying to get to point B, but uh, as you start out, your assumptions that about how the best way to get from A to B change because you can't predict what's going to happen to tides, the wind, and so on and so forth. So you, you find yourself heading in another direction. And because we tend to think, when, you, when you've got that kind of image in mind, you, you think about your, your, the trend. So if we're aiming to go north, but we're heading in a northeasterly direction, we know that if things continue as they've started, we're going to end up carrying on going into the northeast and rather than to the north. And consequently, we need to tack and go northwest and to get back to where we wanted to. So this idea of looking at performance in terms of trends and trajectories, because what I find, and that's kind of the where the present sense book started from, is when you convert numbers and tables of numbers into pictures and pictures which show performance in terms of trends and trajectories, all of a sudden it becomes obvious whether a particular set of plans is credible or not mm, because yeah. you tend to get hockey sticks and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, the real world. I think irrespective of the kind of rational arguments for moving away from sort of conventional tables and variance analysis, using pictures which show trends enables people to, helps people to think about the problem differently and to expose the gaps, the inconsistencies in targets, plans, actual numbers, which which tend to get hidden because we're just overwhelmed with digits. Mm. So I think that good way to begin to subliminally change the way that people think about the problem. And and the thing about measuring measurements and reporting is that's one thing over which most finance people have total control you don't have to make a business case to introduce a graph into a report <laughs> yeah. you just do it yeah. yeah and if it works people will go oh that's great yeah. you don't have to convince people they they will convince themselves if it works, if it works yeah. you don't need to make a rational argument for it so i think that's, that's a good way to help to change the nature of the conversation in, in most organizations and as i say that's the kind of genesis of the present sense book but it won't surprise you to know that it took on a life of its own <laughs> as soon as I started trying to write it. Yeah, well, look, I know. I mean, I I, I can see that. See that, Steve. I mean, um, you know, the the when I was just, you know, I had the the pleasure of reading an early preview on it, and again, thank you for that opportunity. What what I I um, also liked in there was you actually examined some areas in neuroscience, you know, on how we can yeah. better exploit our natural strengths and brain so like there you just mentioned about an opportunity to exploit our natural positioning and organization around measurement and not having yep. to get a business case to introduce a graph or yep. a chart 
you know, what strengths could we perhaps leverage from a neuroscience perspective in your mind? Yeah, well, perhaps to answer that question, I'll back up, back up a little bit. <laughs> because I think <laughs> uh, before I get into that, it's, it's perhaps worth kind of explaining the problem yeah. before we kind of get into yeah, solutions. Yeah. So that right back in the day, kind of I'm talking about kind of 2001, 2002, I kind of got stuck in my early days in Beyond Budgeting on, on a problem, which was if we don't have budgets, how do we measure performance? Because we've been drilled into thinking that performance is a gap between a target and an actual. And if we're saying it doesn't make sense to have budgets, which are in essence thousands of targets, if you're saying it doesn't make sense to do all that and to try to predict and lock things down, how do you measure performance? Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how absurd variance analysis was because, number one, a budget is just a guess, and it's usually politically motivated. That's just if you take it in a year, and then you, then you take this politically motivated guess, and by some arbitrary mechanism, we split that guess down into lots of little guesses called monthly budgets. So you've got a guess, and then you're comparing that with a single data point, and everything we know about the natural world says that any measure has an unknown amount of noise in it, just random things yeah. that happen that mean the number is, you can't regard a single number as the truth. So you're comparing a politically motivated guess with a number with an unknown amount of noise in it. And then you're thinking somehow that the difference between that, those two numbers is meaningful. It's just absurd. It, it just can't be meaningful. But, but and then you throw it to the... Sorry, sorry, Andrew, you jump in. Yeah, no, I was going to say, but a lot of us are actually um, still doing this absurd behavior. We're locked into it. Locked in, locked yeah, into it, that's the word. It. Locked into it, yeah. 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 yeah, we're locked into it. We can't think differently. And then you throw in big data. So we go, oh, this is great. We've now got millions more data points than we used to have. <laughs> I know. And you go, okay, so that means that you have much more noise than you ever did have before because yeah. the more granular the data, the more noise. And so you're going to do a million more targets well well yeah but you see i don't think so <laughs> no, but you see you see what i you just i got the image jump in my head there now steve of, of some of our our, our finance, finance and accounting colleagues probably spending days a week you know taking all these millions of data points now because of big data and comparing against these absurd um stakes in the ground these guesses yeah. and their job is producing waterfalls to plan or budgets or these monthly guesses um or or bridges from a variance analysis perspective, and we're not really moving the business forward. It's no, just it's trying not, to explain something back that really was a bit of an absurd guess to begin with. And I just feel our, our, our time is better spent elsewhere. Yeah, it's meaningless. And it's worse than wrong <laughs> uh, because we're producing these stories to effectively... Mm. It's a bit like when you look up at the clouds and you see a cloud that looks like, uh, I don't know, Elvis. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and you say, well, there's Elvis up there. Mm. And it isn't Elvis. It's just something that looks like Elvis. And yeah. people go, oh, yeah, you're right, that is Elvis. I think that's what a lot of our business commentary is like. We've got noise. We've come up with a story which creates the sense of a superficial resemblance to something which you recognise. And that becomes the truth. Yeah, well, and and then people make a decision based on that. That's yeah. the worst thing. 
yeah. people go think that is the truth and it isn't it's just patterns we've seen in noise so it's intellectually absurd and also it's a waste of people's time and talents and so on and so forth yeah. so that's where i started from i got kind of some techniques that i think would do the job better like trend analysis and there are some techniques that have been around for donkey's years which help people filter out noise things like control charts and so on and so forth but as i was writing the book i was thinking this kind of how can i make this all hang together what are we really trying to do here and to eventually come around to answering your question that's where it became clear to me that the problem that we have if we're, we're sitting in fpna or something like that and we've got all of this data what we're really trying to do is to make sense of it mm. we're trying to work out what is going on particularly what is going on that is relevant to what we're trying to achieve the purpose of our organization and if what's going on is consistent with the purpose of our organization we call that performance Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, we say it's poor performance. And then it kind of became clear to me that's the problem that fundamentally that our brains have, that we are assaulted by enormous amounts of data. And we have to work out some way of working out what's relevant and what's not relevant. And based on, so in other words, what we can safely ignore, that's the most important <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. And then the stuff we need to pay attention to, we're, we're attributing meaning to it. And that's our job. How do we attribute meaning? And then having done that, which is great, we then have the problem of how do we communicate that meaning to other people? Because it's not enough for us sitting in FP&A to know in inverted commas, the truth, if we can't communicate that to people, that's useless. <laughs> and so we have then a second problem, which is also related to the brain, which is how do other people assimilate information? And we have to communicate meaning to them in ways that makes it easier for people to assimilate quickly, but more importantly, for people to get the same information and draw the same conclusion. So you have to work, you have to start from how do people's brains work? And so that's the second way in which the brain becomes uh, relevant to this, this whole area of performance reporting. And there's just a lot of stuff out because this is a, an area where science has advanced enormously in the last couple of decades, which means that you can come up with a series of practical solutions to help people do that and a lot of it revolves around the intelligent use of graphics because our brains are fundamentally a visual engine that's what our brains do well it's a struggle to extract numbers from to extract sense from tables of numbers uh, which doesn't mean to say they don't have a place but at the moment it's the only club in our bag so there you have it hope you enjoyed today's show if you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter. 
which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. And when all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers. 